0: Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Stephen Blackwood, who is a founding founder of Ralston College in Savannah, Georgia. In this conversation, we talk about, I guess you could say, the humanities and their purpose and where they've gone astray in traditional colleges or the institutions that we have now and where they should be headed in the future if we are to save them. Again, it's a humanities conversation, so it's very wide-ranging. We talk about language, we talk about the internet, we talk about communication, we talk about the soul, intelligence, and so on. Uh, So just prepare to immerse your mind in wonderful gobs of interesting matter, be it gray or arrayed in fabulous technicolor, depending on how you are getting this into your brain. Without further ado, here is Stephen Blackwood. Are you broadcasting live from your institution? It looks like an institution is behind you, or ensconced, uh, you're ensconced in life.
1: I am, uh, I'm actually in, uh, in the, my wife and I have a small, or a, uh, I would say commodious, a lovely two-bedroom flat in the historic town of savannah and i am in the uh second bedroom which we've repurposed as an office here so it's where she does her online teaching from when she's teaching online and normally where i uh i uh, it's that it's like the one kind of quiet place away from the the front door and the the you know the busyness of the street and which is really only a problem because our 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 beloved long-haired miniature Dachshund is is extremely uh, alert and mm. uh, tends to uh, be a bit disruptive um, if you're audio recording. Perhaps we'll uh, hear distant murmurs of the Dachshund. He's right here at my feet, actually, Ugo. Oh, there we go. Okay. Yeah. Ugo or Hugo? Well, uh, he was named uh, – I'll show him to you here. He was going to be – he was going to be named um, – uh, Albrecht after the self-portrait of Albrecht Dürer, you know, with the locks tumbling down. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, then we thought, well, you know, I can't even say Albrecht, so, I mean, how could we expect <laughs> everyone else to say it? Um, but uh, my wife had done her... Dürer. Yeah, you know, exactly. These are not easy things for the uh, the English tongue. Um, do you want, you, you want to do the thing to say? Or, right English up against palette. the microphone. <laughs> anyway, so we went instead with uh, a... a one of the case studies of her dissertation had been on a, a printmaker called Ugo de Carpi, who's oh. quite a an amazing artist of earlier of an earlier century, and so we we called him Ugo. It's the Italian for Hugo, obviously, but uh, hilariously though, it's very easy to say. You know, it's not like it's a hard name, like it's got words or you know vowels or something we can't pronounce, or you know, mm. like the French Gerard, uh, you know, like impossible <laughs> things. Um, yeah, uh, uh, despite that, but it's very interesting because it's not an English word, Ugo, uh, not hard to say for an English person at all, but uh, it's not an English word. It's very interesting how often people say, what, what did you say? Did... And they hear it as Google, actually. Oh, More okay. often than not, they say you called your, or, or Siri Well, you know, Ugo turns into Google. Um, it's actually quite interesting because I think if you, it's interesting to, you know, why names take different forms in different languages. <clears throat> it's mm-hmm. it, it. It really has to do with that's how they can be. You know, they come into the tongue in that way. And yeah, yeah, yeah. even if you take a uh, take a word that isn't hard to say, but isn't part of the language, it it uh, it's interesting how c- quickly people start stumbling over it. Um, yeah. Ugo, you know. Uh, anyway, yeah. that's what this beloved creature is. He's the light of our lives around here.
0: I did this. Uh... Group project at my alma mater, the Evergreen State College, where I went to undergraduate education uh, a few years ago. And one of our assignments was to create a language. They wanted us to create a language, the professor was. So we paired up, and me and my team, we made this language and we distilled it all down to vowels and consonants, and we had all this meaning, you know, we just crammed all this meaning in there, and then we created a play, and then we translated the play that we created into our language, and then performed it in English, and then dubbed it over, and then did the, then we retranslated. Anyways, it, it was this whole thing, but one thing that I, I learned in doing that, that the language was very primitive, like it wasn't worn into the mouth at all. It was like these very crisp, sharp sounds that sounded very... You know, not very refined, and how, as language kind of travels through time, it gets worn in all these different ways, and it starts to bend in all these different dialects and stuff, and I didn't really get that until kind of playing with it in that way.
1: These are, I'm not a, not a linguist, uh, obviously, but these are, they're very interesting things. They're not uh, I mean, language is an incredibly deep and living reality, and it's both something objective insofar as you don't just make it up, you know, and really words mean things, but it's also extremely on the move. So words mean different things in different contexts and in different time periods. And uh, so it's one of these it's one of these doorways into, a fun I would say, really quite a fundamental reality, which is that it's... It's not simply subjectively uh, uh, defined. You know, we can just make up our own language in any meaningful sense, uh, and yet it is something that essentially has meaning within the subject. Mm-hmm. And well, anyway, what well, I don't want to you know, pre- presume—I know what we're going to go on to talk about—but it may be that that dynamic yeah. recurs as we talk about other things.
0: Well, do you ever read Clockwork Orange by um, Burgess or Burgess? Uh, you know,
1: I have not read that. He it's, one of, comes one up... of, it's one of the most of the books out there that I've not read. <laughs> it's on the longer list. Yeah, The much longer list. There,
0: but are you familiar with what he did in that? He creates this slang in there. And for the first couple chapters, you have no idea what, what he's, what the character's talking about. And then your mind just clicks and you're in that person's head and then you kind of bring it out of the novel and you start talking in that way yourself. So.
1: Well, it's, I've thought about these things a bit with regard to the, well, the, one of the ways I've thought about these things is, and this is on my mind partly because I've, uh, just lost someone very dear to me. She was my adopted, I say adopted, uh, not formally, but uh, just in a kind of uh, unofficial way, shared with me. uh, But the woman I called my adopted grandmother, uh, uh, a woman, an amazing person in the south of France, uh, whose other grandchildren sort of invited me to get to know her. And I I lived there for a while. And anyway, became very dear to, to me over, Many years, and and uh, though I met her in 1998, uh, she was already in her early 80s. Uh, in fact, I've just been trying to write a few things about her because she's be- just an amazingly uh, important person to me, and a really astounding person in the way that you know human beings are just amazing things. I mean, they're they're every human individual is a kind of a a kind of an infinite mystery, a kind of a you know the psalmist says, "Fearfully and wonderfully made, uh, knit together in my mother's womb." Uh, the psalmist says to God, "You know, you've knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made." And you know, we all like to think about the wonderful, but the fearful is something there too, right? A human being is a kind of there's a kind of terribleness, and it can go that that that. Depth of what a human being is. I mean, it's it's not inconsequential. Not either. Not just for the individual, but for everyone else. Like, hmm. what we, how we become, what we can become in the good sense, is not something that can be left to chance because so much depends on it. Uh, anyway, I'll maybe I'll circle back and we can talk about Mamie later. Uh, but uh, I met her in her early eighties in nineteen ninety eight, and she just died last Thursday at the age of a hundred and five uh, and. But just about 106. Uh, But it's amazing to me as I think about her, about how much opened up for me through this relationship over, you know, the couple of decades I had the privilege of getting to know her. It was, you know, her life. It was this amazing depth of memory in her going back to what she remembered the Spanish flu. I mean, she she had memories of, you know, when the First World War was not yet over. And it's an astounding deep history, what for most of us are just memories, uh, to the way in which those earlier memories were accessed to a much earlier time. In fact, in certain respects, I'd say she she was closer in the habits of mind and life that she had to the people who built Notre Dame and the Duomo in her parents' native Florence, Then, in many respects she would have been to a child who was 4, or 5, 10, or 15 years old today. So in that sense, she was a connection to a a very deep past, and indeed to a European past. Um, But, you know, it's just amazing to me how a, a, a person can open up whole worlds. There's the world that they open up, but then there was the French language, and there were the habits and customs of of Provence and of of France. There was the the poetry that was on her lips. There was the the whole world of cuisine. She's an amazing cook, and um, her religious life. She's a deeply devout Catholic. And so there were these different levels of wonder that were opened up to me just by getting to know this beautiful and extraordinary and in a certain sense very normal person i mean it's not as though she you know we always get we get it so wrong the way we think about what is extraordinary is if someone's extraordinary if they win a nobel prize or if they get lots of a million twitter followers or something but is that really you know when you really think about what matters as an accomplishment as a human being like what you would what you would want written on your gravestone um Anyway, she was one of those people who was extraordinary for what one might say about her uh, in just a few words. Uh, and and uh, I'm thinking about she comes up because what I was going to say is is about this French word uh, terroir, t e r r o terroir exactly t e r r o i o r I think it's t e r r not terroir. two I think it's double r anyway. Listeners can look it up. But the, the, the French concept of, 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 of terroir uh, often comes into food because people, people think, well, this is the, the terroir of the region. But it's a very rich concept that has to do with, with how all of the, the, the aspects of a place uh, interrelate. So people will talk about the way in which the limestone in the soil makes this particular grape do well in the wine. And then actually, if you have that with the ham or the cheese of the region, it seems to make sense. Um, and so, you know, the climate, the rainfall, the the, the geology, uh, all of these things are going to be present in the, the the food that can be, that grows well in a certain region. But of course, that's not just food. You know, that gives rise to the habits of life you know how you know what are the what are the habits of agriculture and of 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 crops and and of putting things in the barn and the and the preserving them throughout the winter but then that's bigger than food because that will give rise to the to the to, to language you'll need words to describe these things and then before you know it you know the words you're using to describe the grapes and the 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 taste of the cheese and so forth those then become metaphors through which you understand things in a broader picture, hmm. and then those metaphors give rise to to you know deep you know whether it's myths or stories or accounts of the self that you know through which you then understand yourself on this sort of deeper uh, and kind of uh, uh, almost atemporal level. And so, hmm. what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is that even if we could just invent a language, you know, it would be completely devoid of all of the history that gives language its its texture, its subtleness. I mean I've had the, the, the great privilege of, of living for significant periods of my life in different places. And it's a, it's just uh it's just very remarkable how much language even the English language can change, even as you go around the United States or Canada, or or even parts of Canada where I grew up. You know, village to village, or within a hundred miles, and that certainly is how languages were throughout all of human history. Right? They were very. There were differences that took place, that became apparent. Very, very. In very what we would consider today very small distances, but of course, if you remember that most people were traveling by foot for most of human history, you know what t- today is a is a trip to you know Walmart or whatever you know it 's only ten miles away it 's only a twelve minute drive well, you know in twelve minutes you can cover you know what about a, 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 a two thirds of a mile or something like that and so if you think about what you might be able to do an hour there and back that 's still only a mile and a half uh, and the reason I think that's significant is because, as you know, one of the reasons we all you know, many of us love going to Europe is because the way in which that that history as being infinitely local but also related to a larger picture is is more obviously present there than it than it often is at least, though in some sense it still is in our own uh well here in for example the United States, yeah, the
0: beads of experience are kind of condensed to the if you imagine this. Uh spiderweb and in well, the dew and those those little drops have had a lot of time to really burrow in there and one of my favorite parts of uh, Europe is the cathedrals I, I walk into them and i can feel all the attention laid into the brick and then laid over and over and over again and all those rituals and it's like this was a place for family after family gener- after generation after generation they built this and then they they Used it, you know. They entered into it as as an instrument uh, for you know, whatever that uh, word is for worship that um, they were doing there.
1: Well, well, I, I think you're under something really deep that pertains to the nature of of memory and the way in which a physical object, which mm. is inanimate, can take on a kind of. Well, of course, animate means soul. It can take on a kind of life, a kind of 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 very rich meaning. I, you know, when, when Notre Dame burned, hmm. you know, before our eyes, for most of us, most of us saw it burning, you know, online in some form, or images of it burning. And many people who have no relation to France, or to Gothic architecture, or to Catholicism, uh, found themselves very saddened by that. And I think it's it's well worth asking what we thought we were losing. There is a and 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 what is lost compared to let's say Notre Dame had burnt to the ground and we just rebuilt it you know, exactly as it was, what's lost between the old one and the new one? Is, yeah, and is and is that like a pantomime of
0: what it was? Is it uh, like is it not better to kind of recreate it with what the people are now? And then how do you are you your way towards deciding
1: that? Well, I think. This is one of the things that we're really wrestling with in our own moment is, you know, whether human beings are actually capable of just self-definition without any context, without any past, without any history. Hmm. I mean, you know, at some level, what Notre Dame had in the present before it burned and, you know, still in some sense will as it's restored was a living presence of the past. So, all those pilgrims who would soften the stones uh, uh all of those candles built over you know or burnt over eight hundred years, in some sense, all of that was present, all that past was present and to to be before inside or to walk into a building is in some sense to participate in a trans historical community mm-hmm. that that you that you we're we're part of, and you know, when you start eliminating the moments that allow you to feel like you're part of a larger story you know you're really losing, I would argue, something not just uh, uh, on the fringe, but really fundamental to human self-understanding. You know, it's really, when you think about Notre Dame, it's said that the timbers, the oak trees that were that became the timbers of the roof that burned, that those were cut from mature oaks of probably three to 400 years old, which means that the oak trees themselves would have sprouted In and around 800 that is to say you know around the time of charlemagne and it's just it's just an amazing thing that 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 there was a a kind of living presence of the past unbroken back to then and then of course you can go back you know before then in various ways so that the what i'm trying to get at is that you can rebuild the cathedral and in some sense it has a connection to all that because it is modeled after that in a way that's what we do when we give life to perennial forms of architecture and when we speak languages and we learn things that people know and we we cook recipes that were they're handed down i mean there's all kinds of ways in which we can do this i'm not suggesting it's just through you know material physical materials that are handed down or buildings or whatever but there's something irreducibly rich about those and the the i would say uh the will to destroy those, which we see with all kinds of cityscapes, you know, we're not t- we do to talk about whether, you know, how Notre Dame burned, I'm not making a comment about that. What I'm saying is that there's a very active will to destroy those buildings in the present. I mean, right now in Canada, uh, in Ottawa, there is a there's a building called the Chateau Frontenac, which is a fairly iconic building in in Canada. If I'm not mistaken, it's a kind of neo gothic. I believe it's 19th century building. It's near the Houses of Parliament, so it's right in kind of the the iconic uh, capital city of the of the country and the. There was a desire to expand upon this building, and, you know, one of the ideologies of contemporary architecture, and this is just, in my view, this is just insanely ideological, so obviously wrong, that you're not allowed to make new additions look like they were part of the old building. Like, why the hell not? I mean, why not? I mean, if that's the way in which you can most harmoniously... Uh, you know, mm. add to the building? Why should they have to be distinctly different? I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, for God's sakes, the people who built the Chateau Frontenac knew that it was an architectural plan resembling something from several hundred years earlier in France, kind of a French Chateau look. They knew they weren't in the 16th century, for God's sakes. But yeah. the point I'm making is that the they wanted to expand upon this building and they they were. Even in the midst of, you know, virtue signaling present day, you know, uh, uh, architecture, the the local boards or heritage boards turned down the designs one after another after another because they were just so hideously disgusting and there was uproar in the public. <laughs> anyway, I read recently that the sixth design was approved. And I thought, well, it must be pretty good after, you know, six designs. I mean, you know, this sounds like, you know, I am not kidding you. You've got to look this up. You can share it with the listeners. It looks like a cross between a Verizon server farm and an American penitentiary. It is a hideously disgusting building. And you have to ask yourself, why are they doing that? They are destroying the visual mm. perception of a of a great moment in Canadian architecture that means something. It is actually beautiful. It's, beauty, in my view, is not simply in the eye of the beholder. And we could, you know, talk about why, you know, in what sense it is and what sense it isn't. It's a complicated, yeah. rich question of, 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 of what aesthetics are about. But the point I'm making is that the, you know, that's a kind of very intentional desecration that is tantamount to actually actively burning something down, because you are openly, agitating towards the destruction visually of that Mm, mm -hmm. inherited uh, building. It makes me think of it as a metaphor
0: for you set up these arbitrary rules that don't really make sense or that you can kind of see or Going to interrupt the, I guess, the cohesiveness of a system. You set up the rules and that foster these bad, bad designs. The bad designs are going to come. But what happens is that the bad ideas, they just keep on flooding. But the, you're, what you're doing is destroying your mechanism of telling good from bad anymore, because you have to be different. There's this other value other than beauty at play here. There's the, I don't know what that value is with the case of, let's say with, with that chateau, but we see in American law, we see in the American institutions of higher education, where in the rush to do something progressive, they're kind of eroding the ability for people to tell good ideas from bad ideas. And so bad ideas come up, and people at first are like, no, 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 no. But eventually the bad ideas win because people don't have anything to lean back on. There's no evaluating principle. People get tired of, of upholding something that doesn't have a positive value. So they just kind of relax the standards and then the, uh, the greater project gets corrupted.
1: Yes, I think that's, I think that's all, I think that's all true, but, uh, I mean, many people like to, you know, architecture. I've been, I'm, I'm almost obsessed with architecture, and I'm, I'm not an architect. You know, Wait, I know dazzlingly little about architecture. Stephen, really. Just
0: off the top of your head, how many things are you obsessed with? Like, ten? Like architecture. I would one. say I, just, I have, I have a sense that you have a
1: number of. Obsessions. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're completely right. To put, to put this to me, because I'm a very uh, passionate, I'm an enthusiast in many respects, and so I get very excited about things. But what I will say about architecture is that it's the thing I always end up going to when I'm trying to describe what, when I'm trying to instantiate larger principles that might be metaphysical or philosophical, hmm. I mean, my background's in philosophy. So I'm very natural, I'm very at home in, you know, talking in a register that, frankly, Is sort of specific to the ideas that you're able to get at only through philosophy. But when you are talking more widely, that is often not appropriate or not as effective. People can't connect with it unless they've also had the chance to acquire that language, as we were saying earlier. But architecture is almost always the place that I go because you're looking at it right there and you can say, gosh, I actually do see the difference between this beautiful neoclassical building that has Instantiate some relations to, of different forms and proportions and symmetries and these things that are perennial, uh, perennial aspects of architecture throughout every age. I mean, there's, this is not just like nineteenth century or eighteenth or. I mean, it's, it it's really. The fact is that you know after what about nineteen thirty or forty? I mean, the kinds of buildings people started building they were utterly incompatible with the entire history of architecture of all times and places. Hmm. And so it wasn't like, oh, well, this is just kind of a, a new take on an old form. No, we've been doing that for, you know, thousands of years. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say about architecture is that the, so, the, what brutalism really is instantiating is the idea that there, there is no transcendent or metaphysical or independently existing um, reality outside of ourselves like there is no such thing as truth or beauty or goodness on their own terms they're just constructs and what brutalism is saying you have to face is that all that is just imaginary get used to it right this is all there is is this horrific concrete wall the example i gave recently is is that (laughs) it is tantamount to there being a uh, you having a child there there are some people actually live in these or or, or, are abused in this way it's it's you know it's Break all of our hearts. It's like having a parent who tells you every day, you're a piece of shit. That's what you are. It's so much is at stake because what these things do is they they either close down or open up our mm-hmm. horizons of what we think, of how we think about ourselves. Yeah. And I would say that we're living in a moment in which the dominant, the prevailing ideology is horizon darkening and that the ideological uh, source of that we, could desc- we, can, we can discuss, but that what is fundamentally at work, you mm. see in brutalism. But I would say that's a worldview that is writ large through family life, through culture, through arts, uh, through through our, our, our political and civic life, uh, through family life, through all kinds of things. I would say that what you see in the brutalism, writ large and disseminated through everything else is the root cause of the Spiritual, intellectual, artistic, cultural, and political crisis we are now in the midst of. It's very interesting that you bring that up because Evergreen State College,
0: which I graduated from in uh, 2017, and that I kind of founded my media empire, or maybe duchy, I think I have a duchy at this point, Um, or maybe just a hamlet. Uh, It was brutalist architecture in the middle of this incredibly rich, Olympia rainforest. I think a ducal state
1: you know, a ducal <sighs> state like Venice would be would be very appropriate.
0: I'm fine. That's good. I have my Mott's and my Baileys. They're all in line. But yeah, so that, that architecture. So you, what you said about uh, in the 30s and 40s, there was this incongruity, be, incongruity between the uh, architecture that people were making then from the past. It seems like a lot of our steps have been trying to kind of make something new. That is kind of uh, not related directly or organically to the past. I'm thinking of Pound, Ezra Pound, uh, it, it, but it's kind of assembled out of it. It's kind of uh, kind of taken out of context and then recontextualized into the modern self. And I think that, that you know there's the, a branch of discussion around that kind of modernism and then postmodernism and stuff. But a lot of the behaviors, the attitudes that we see popping up. Around us that I critique is that they they're out of play. They're descended from previous iterations of these ideas, but they're they're in. They're purposely trying to tear down everything else, but almost like they're they're eroding their own standing. Like there's this gif of this drunk guy, whacking this chair that he's standing on with another chair, and you you're looking at him. Do you understand what you're going to do? And he just knocks the. The feet out from under himself and hits his head on the ground, you know? And it just seems like there's there's this revolt going on, but there's not a rich sort of revolt. Like, even Satan was preserving something in, in his descent from heaven, Milton Miltonianly speaking.
1: Uh, yes. I think that's quite a powerful metaphor you've given us about the, you know, knocking out the, the legs of the chair. I, I, I would... I think it needs to be said, though. I mean, people have been doing new things. I mean, that's, that, I mean, that's in a way what tradition is, right? It's always a riffing on or a, a form of creativity that's given rise to uh, through the study of what has come before. And I think the idea that you can have anything meaningfully creative without a relationship to the past—that's com- that's completely wrong. There is there is there is no such thing as you know just de novo creation. It's interesting to look at, for example. I'm a huge fan of the the jazz pianist Keith Jarrett for example. Hmm. And Jarrett Jarrett you know Jarrett was classically trained, had his recorded albums of, of all kinds of great classical music, symphonic music, etc. But you know he be, he went on to become I don't even think it's close. I mean the greatest jazz pianist of all time, the best-selling jazz pianist of all time. In fact, I think the best-selling album of piano music of all time if I'm not mistaken. And you know, but it comes to this whole question that we might just explore a bit further. I mean, you can have a piano in the corner of a room and say, "Well, hey, you know, you're free to go play the piano," but you know, you can do almost nothing unless you're already brought into the the ver- at least the very basic skills of how to play the piano. And hmm. so, you, this is true. This is true of everything. This is true of. Picasso, this is true of uh, uh, all the whole history of philosophy and literature, fundamentally. Uh, you know, it's even actually very interesting, if you read Mary Carruthers work, she's a medieval hist- uh, kind of uh, well scholar of the Middle Ages, who's done very, very interesting and extensive work on on memory. And, you know, she brings out how, you know, in the monastic context, how even that the works that were considered most creative. I mean, it's actually very interesting. If you look at the, at, at medieval uh, at science, for example, uh, you know, where does it come out of? You know, who are the people that are thinking these thoughts in the fourteenth and fifteenth century? And so, I think this this sense that you can somehow cultivate an independent mind, like in the abstract. I mean that's very destructive. In fact, you can't you can't learn to think anything at all unless you have things to think, and you've got to do a deep dive into content in order to become the person who can mo- meaningfully modify or iterate or even discard upon uh, aspects of or upon that.
0: Mm-hmm. What set you on? the journey of tethering yourself to history and to culture. Assuming at one point you were free from that compulsion.
1: I See, I d- don't think well, I don't think any of us actually can ever be free of that fundamentally. I mean, even if we think we are and even if we act as though we are, I don't fundamentally think that there's a single human being in the in the world who can successfully live without memory, you know, without memory, you know, we can't even recognize ourselves in the mirror. Um, uh, You know, we couldn't even recognize our front door without memory or the pace, the faces of any of our most beloved Friends, let alone their personalities, the things they've done, you know, the the time that you know we got lost, you know, walking here, you know, whatever. I mean, the point I'm trying to drill this in down to the level of something very clear. Like none of us can have any meaning at all in any of our lives without memory, because that actually opens up the larger dynamic, which I would say we're living in with respect to a deeper past or a larger past. And so, even if you set about trying to destroy that. Uh, you can't do that without fundamentally destroying yourself. And that's why I think your your example of the, the legs of the chair is so good, because it shows how it is inherently counter to your own uh, self-realization to do that. In my own life, th- though, I think the question you're asking is, you know, when did I become conscious of these dynamics? And, I, you know, I think like most people, I suppose, you know, I came to it in various ways. I, I came to it by coming to know and love my, my grandparents and hearing their s- stories of you know their, you know, recent immigrant past, and you know their, their understanding and how different the life you know life was in many respects for for them growing up in the twenties and thirties, and and beyond. I, my parents are both musicians. I had you know amateur musicians, but very you know they have a deep love and appreciation for music, and so I grew up with some you know music being on. There was a record player, and. We had an album of James Galloway, the Irish uh, flute player playing some beautiful music, and I remember hearing that when I was five or six or seven years old, and I I wanted I wanted to be part of that music. And so I, you know, I hmm. took up took up the flute, and you know, then you take that up, and that's a that's like a little doorway that then opens up this this infinite world of of music of all kinds. And then I come from a, a family that takes uh, the Christian religion seriously and that then opens you up to a whole history of 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 what that was about and where did that come from and you know is it true what is what, what is the merit in it? of Christianity well yeah i mean in a certain sense in which any any of these things are any of these things can become doorways to to everything. I mean, there's a sense in which the whole is in every part. I mean, you know, you know, you can look at a single oil painting. And in a certain sense, that becomes, you know, you've got the whole history of painting, you have the stories and ideas and customs that are present in that history, you have the chemical level of, of, of the 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 whole he, material history of how paintings came to be made and and the whole life and a conception of what an artist is. Anyway I'm just trying to say you can take anything, you can give me any example at all and, and it becomes a, a doorway or a a, a portal as you know I, I think is a useful way of of, of talking. And so you know my, my I think my ways into these things were were not were not unconventional, although at the same time I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that that many, many, many tens of millions of people are finding themselves without the the habits and customs and forms of activity, artistic, cultural, civic, etc., that enable us as individuals to understand ourselves. I'd say we are living in a in a pretty profound crisis of civilizational proportions.
0: Hmm. Yeah, when you were talking about language in France back a while ago, and you're talking about the how the way that food is grown and then the agricultural cycles, it all feeds into the culture. And I was thinking, well, nowadays we're all synced up to a news cycle this drama cycle is kind of our sunrise and sunset and time to reap and time to sow like that's kind of like the the human weather uh, is, and, which is really unstable because what is it actually tethered to I guess every four years the United States has an election that's one major event but you see the uh, this liturgical calendar of identity. Kind of reinventing the Catholic Church through all these corporations every month has a different identity every day has a sub identity, and then you have all these identities that kind of jockey for position on different identity days you know that we're, we're still we're longing for a liturgical kind of a pace and a way to apportion out what we're made out of now, which is no longer just growing food and surviving and being really connected to the environment. We're connected to each other now, which means that it's the, you know, it's those artifacts of identity that anchor us somehow. And we can see that those are very insufficient. And then you add a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, urgency, a little bit of crisis, uh, and a little bit of uh, revolutionary spirit, and you have the seething mass of chaos that's continually regenerating just drama.
1: I think that's completely right. I, in fact, I wrote a whole book about patterns, and mm. I just don't... It's only through patterns that time is stabilized, right? There is no stability to our our temporal experience at all without the the both the memory of the past and the repetition in the past that allows us to for example discern throughout through all the faces of the crowd the ones that we know and if you apply that insight at a larger level what you see is that it's only by means of certain recurrent patterns that we can come to understand ourselves at all. Mm -hmm. And so it makes, and also that the patterns that we expose ourselves to are also at some profound level what we become. It's the Aristotelian insight that you are what you do. And we all know that, you know, (laughs) we all like to say, oh, I'm not those things that I did. But actually, it often turns out that the things that we do emerge out of the habits that we've allowed to or had formed in us. And they're actually not easy to break, you know, they're they are, they're determinative. Now, that's not to say you can't set new habits, but it's it's hard. And so, you know, I just don't think there's anything, there is nothing more important relative to, say, the shaping of a human individual, than what patterns shape them, patterns of thought, patterns of understanding themselves, patterns uh, there can be material patterns or, you know, patterns of, of, you know, some people would say patterns of eating and sleeping are actually very important. I mean, there, this is not it's not uh, it's not just the patterns of self-understanding at the higher level, whether it's religion or, you know, c- civic understanding or whatever. It's it's the very most basic frames of reference. And there's not a single person. I mean, just sort of like what I was saying about memory, there's no one who lives without any pattern at all. But by and large, the deconstruction of certain inherited forms of culture matched with the digital revolution and the internet and the dopamine-addicting screens that we're all, you know, being encouraged to live our lives through has left, I would say, most of us pretty goddamn unmoored.
0: What you're describing makes me think of uh, like a modern-day deluge, the flood, very epic, like everything is cattywampus. Somebody's got to have a boat somewhere with enough collected uh, variant DNA to land somewhere and start over again, but we are all awash in a human sea. And I wonder if there isn't isn't a way to somehow conceptualize, humbly, albeit humbly, a, a, a pattern that might give us anchor communally or individually. I guess, you know, the the smart thing to do is start individually, you know, regulate your Twitter usage, maybe something like that. But is, do you see a pattern like at least there's attempts to forming patterns and the tribalism that we're seeing unfold and be propped up by certain media organisms or organs of whatever <clears throat> their organs of. Are trying to establish patterns of familiarity, good guy, bad guy, this guy, that guy, inside, outside, all those group dynamics, those are ways of making pattern out of the human wash. Do you see, or what would be the characteristics of a pattern that would be able to kind of write us?
1: Well, I think the first thing to be said is that, I think that's the right question to be asking. I think one thing we're confronting is the very stern fact that human beings cannot live without forms of self-understanding and we are evolved as a species i mean quite apart from it we can talk about you know religion and and you know philosophy and we can get into a register of these things that that i think is actually necessary to think about them adequately but but even without that we can say simply a fact that, you know, human beings have evolved as self-conscious creatures. And even even if the whole world that we thought we were thinking about, you know, know, the whole world from which we derive meaning and purpose and, you know, that whole realm of things, even if it were purely self-constructed and there were no actual purchase in reality, which I think we can know pretty definitively is not clear through mathematics and philosophy and other things, but even if it were just the, the even if it were just a situation in which we had evolved as self conscious creatures, the, the fact of the matter is, we would have we should we'd still have to take it seriously, we'd say, Well, this is what a human being is, it's, it's evolved such that the way in which it understands itself is actually fundamental to its 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 nature. And well being, yeah, and and well being exactly, yeah. and you know we're actually living in a situation now in which it's like you know I, I often talk about other species and other examples of things just to to make the point clear. I mean you know you can you can starve a plant very easily by just not giving it enough water or sun. You know you can you can absolutely ruin the the magnificent creature that a dog is by not giving it affection, and if that's true for a dog. I mean, what does it mean if a human being is, as we know, as a fact of evolution, is a self-conscious creature to deny it the forms of self-understanding that allow it to thrive? Okay. And that's actually where we are. And I, I think it it needs to be said that, that. you know, people like to go on, you know, endlessly in talking about the problems with the, the so-called woke and so on and so forth. And I, I share many of the The concerns and criticisms about the way in which a certain kind of ideology is weaponized in very destructive ways. Um, But, you know, I think it needs to be said, it is not young people's fault that our culture has so profoundly failed them, so profoundly failed to give them institutions and forms of life and culture that are adequate to their nature. And what I think we're finding with, for example, the, the woke and any number of other things, is that at some level, these are an index of a Deep desire for meaningful self-understanding that is not simply self-generated. It's 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 you're being part of something larger than yourself, whether it's a, a fight for justice or however you might understand it. And of course, I think that many of these these forms of political, social, political activism are are, are contradictory and in many respects dangerous and also destructive of the very ends they they themselves espouse. But we should do well to remember that, you know, national socialism didn't get purchase out of nowhere. I mean, it did offer something that at that point, people were vulnerable to needing. Now, there were people who were able to resist it, and even within Germany, and who saw it for what it was. But that's not to say that it didn't have any very significant degree of ability to attract people. And and that's not a defense of national socialism. That's actually to say that the culture had failed in profound ways mm-hmm. that allowed for that to happen. And our own culture has failed, by any measure, spectacularly, with regard to forms of self-understanding. Now, when you think about what it means to do something about that, yeah. it. Well, I think that, you know, fundamentally, there are actually some unbelievably rich models for us to consider for possible adaptation to our current circumstances. And architecture is a good, a good, a good example. I mean, you know, if, you said, if you said to young people today, hey listen, you have gotta go out and design cities, but you're not, you, you know, we're gonna delete your memory bank so you've never seen it building in the past and we're not gonna give you access to anything from the past. Well, I mean, what they would come up with is unlikely to be very interesting. But if you said, actually, here is an entire history that you can work with the principles the ideas the techniques the materials well they would be able to give rise to breathtakingly beautiful buildings they could build new cathedrals and mosques and synagogues and 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 communities and neighborhoods and and you know, things of extraordinary beauty and sophistication and integration and coherence i'm not saying it's easy but what i'm saying is that It's not as though, I mean, we shouldn't pretend as if our situation is, oh my goodness, we're at sea, we have no resources, there's nothing that, you know, how could we ever navigate our, I mean, mean, for God's sakes, we have all the world's great religions, we have the whole history of philosophy, literature, you know, theology, uh, the whole history of uh, uh, political evolution and development of all of our institutions. I mean, we could start by just trying to understand them and recover them in the ways that we think are appropriate. And that's fundamentally what I think we should do.
0: And how is that affected?
1: Well, it it is a there there are a number of levels at which I think that work needs to be undertaken. One of them, I think, fundamentally is, of course, educational. I don't think there is any transmission of culture outside of institutions of education that bring young people deeply meaningfully in a manner of self-understanding into that inherited past so that they can both have its illumination and carry it forward in the way that they're inspired to do it's not it's not a program or a formula It's like, say you need to transmit this no 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 it's it's like here we have this amazing treasures we wanted to share them with you and then they go oh wow you know i'm going to write something about this or i'm inspired to 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 to, to take this beautiful thing and then make something else out of it. I mean, that's, so I don't think there's any answer to the question that doesn't involve institutions of education. But it's bigger than that, too, because just as a soul-destroying, horizon-closing ideology is now disseminated by our institutions of higher education, and our elite universities especially, though I'm not a catastrophist, I think there's all kinds of good things still happening there, I hasten to add, but fundamentally, I mean, let's just be honest, I mean, you know, the situation is that uh, this ideological standpoint is is pretty dominantly uh, in charge of or directing virtually every in- form of institution and, cult- and, and cultural institution that we have. And so on the one hand, it's a matter of transmitting to young people forms of self-understanding that are adequate to their own nature. On the other hand, it's the way in which once people see those things more richly, they're able to share them with others, even unbeknownst to themselves who, who they're sharing them with. So, for example, if take the architecture. If you learn to build something beautiful and you create something beautiful, you're never even going to know most of the names, even encounter most of the human beings who are going to walk by that and have their own lives ennobled by that. If you become a, a, a player of beautiful music, I mean, do you know all the people who listen to you on Spotify? I mean, if you if you or let's to make this even more personal, I think of this, my, my adopted French grandmother, if you hmm. if you share your own soul in deep ways with others, that is going to change them and everyone they connect with, and everyone they connect with, and so on and so forth. So there's an infinite possibility of transformation or influence, both for bad and for good, in every human individual. And one of the things we need to do is reanimate, rediscover... The inherited wisdom of the past so that we can adapt it to our present in the ways that are appropriate. And that involves not just understanding, but, you know, forms of religion, culture, politics. It means to reinvigorate in much richer and more meaningful ways the whole landscape Of our culture, and that's not a top-down thing. You can't sort of centrally plan it; that it's impossible. But it is a a fact that bringing, awakening people in a way that is adequate to their own nature has infinite numbers of knock-on downstream effects. Mm
0: -hmm. How does Ralston College play into
1: that? Well, that's fundamentally what the college aims to do. The college aims to very directly face the meaning crisis that we're swimming in and offer both all those students who will come to its doors, but also anyone anywhere interested in humanistic inquiry, some richer access to that ageless conversation. So you know, there's a number. You know, to speak more concretely, I mean, we we do think that it is uh, possible, and we very much intend to have a pretty powerfully disruptive uh, role in the whole higher educational system by showing that better institutions are possible. I think the idea that we should consider ourselves fundamentally subject to the status quo like all we have is all we can ever ha- ever have i mean that's i just think that's insane i mean the, the position we're in right now benjamin is 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 i mean we get, get contacted by a, a lot of young people who are just hungry they're they're tired of the the fraudulent mess that they're faced with in higher education they're they're you know there's Dopamine and porn addiction and rising suicide and you know cultural alienation and the political rancor and the whole mess of social media. I mean, these are this this is the world people are living in, and you know the situation. And this is one reason I'm I, though in a in a deep sense I consider myself a conservative in the small, c, non political sense of actually trying to transmit these riches to young people today. Um, I get quite frustrated with people who call themselves political conservatives, because um, what if we? what have we done hmm. i mean there's only one metric that matters if you are someone who believes in preservation or, or preservation in the deepest sense and that is do have you opened it up to young people and you know when you have young people burning your cities i mean there's you know it's like the the meme hmm. you had one job and you failed like you know you just you failed and the, so the point I'm, I'm making is that the situation we're in right now is as though you, know, you have a starving person knocking on your door, asking for something to eat, and you say to them, no, go down to the food bank, which we both know doesn't have any food instead. Hmm. I mean, that's actually the cultural moment we're in. There are, there are very hungry people just longing for better ways, you know, more spiritual nourishment, better ways of understanding themselves, which frankly, we have in abundance. And at the deepest level, what Ralston College is about is meeting that perennial human need and aspiration. Mm -hmm. And that will take various forms, both uh, systemic forms in terms of a a, a new institution of higher education that is uh, uh, both a a reinvention of and a revival of the traditional university, an in-person college where you can come and get a degree. But the second side of it is very much broader. It's actually to... To t- to break down the barriers between the the ivory tower and everyone else, and to offer anyone anywhere the the chance to participate in a in a community a a fellowship of humanistic inquiry where they can be part of asking the questions that all human beings have to ask. I mean that's what the humanities are. I mean it's no it's not it's not some like. It, the reason people think the humanities don't have anything to offer is because of the way that they've been, they've been horrifically poisoned by all kinds of, it, of you know jargon-filled ideology at the university, and because those people go off and do things like build things that destroy the Chateau Frontenac. But actually, all the humanities are is the record of earlier human beings in the past asking the questions that we ourselves ask. I mean, what is justice? What is forgiveness? What is beauty? How do I live a meaningful life? And And those... Though there are, you know, there are some works of art or or philosophy or whatnot that are not terribly accessible, by and large, in the main, the record of humanistic inquiry is something that can speak to any human being anywhere. And I'll give my dying breath to doing anything I can, however, whatever its consequences are. To trying to open to try to open those things up and that's what our whole team and it's not just me Ralston in college but there's a team of 15 or 20 people in any given week uh, d- 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 both uh, employed and volunteer who are uh, uh, laboring away bringing this institution into into, into realization but the, the 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 point I'm trying to, to really make here is that that we're facing a very, we're in the midst of a very serious crisis, I would say a civilizational crisis. And we need to do something about it. And educational institutions have got to be fundamental and always have been fundamental. I mean, there is no point in human flourishing, ever in recorded history that doesn't have those. There is no there is certainly no Western culture. It's the culture I know the best. It's not that I'm I'm I think it's the only culture we're studying far from it. I've had you know beautiful encounters in Japan and in China and all kinds of things. But my, my 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 point is that I do know something about the history and development of the West. And there is no way that the the freedoms that even those at the furthest end of the spectrum that even their critiques depend upon there is no Mode or manner or possibility of maintaining those fundamental freedoms that isn't based upon or of which the condition, of which, of which one of the conditions is conversation about those very things at institutions that keep them alive. It's like thinking that without an existent flame, you can't light others. Now, of course, I know now we have, you know, lighter fluid and all these magical things. So the metaphor seems to break down. Yeah. But the, 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 the absolutely fundamental fact is there is no Western culture and there's certainly no future for anything resembling uh, a free democratic West without institutions that are absolutely devoted to lighting new fires in the souls of the young. Are you saying that colleges nowadays aren't
0: lighting fires in the souls of the young? Because I saw a lot of fires getting started by college age kids over the last five years, but maybe it has nothing to do with the institutions that were peddling some form of uh, radical uh,
1: change. Well, you know, we can, we can explore the various ways in which the metaphor might work, but... <clears throat> Fundamentally, the way in which I'm using it comes from a beautiful quotation by Plutarch, which is, he says, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lit. And I would actually say that the peddlers of ideology believe the mind is a vessel to be filled. You know, you are just a a lump of clay that needs to get in line with their ideological Hmm. will to power. And... So you know, I, I'm not I've not followed closely the events in in Portland and elsewhere, but it, it seems to me pretty clear that a lot of it is really naked power moves, um, which are which are exactly in line with the brutalism that I was just describing. Mm. And the the alternative to that, I would say, is is a vision that opens the human being up to its intrinsic relationship with reality more widely construed. Truth, beauty, and so on, hmm. and and yet I would also want to say that some of those who are, you know, certainly many of those who are participating in, in various kinds of of peaceful protest, and perhaps even those who are agitating in violent ones. I mean, some of them are nakedly, you know, seeking various kinds of power and destruction, and they're 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 openly destructive. But is it possible that some of them may, however deluded they are, think they're doing something good it's certainly the case that many of those who donate to certain causes are actually moved by persistent uh, inequities uh not you know neo-marxist uh uh, uh, uh nihilistic dreams okay, okay. Yeah. so so i i would actually want to dig into this in a fairly subtle way uh, because you know when i, when I saw people on their knees, you know, uh, in those famous scenes from last summer, seeking some kind of uh, absolution or atonement, I I mean, it, it does need to be said, the desire for atonement and forgiveness is a deep perennial human need. And, you know, what are the structures, what are the, the forms and ceremonies and, and uh, theological and philosophical, sociological uh, uh, understandings that allow for that to take place? And, you know, it actually turns out that the West has some very sophisticated views on that, uh, uh, that we could discuss. I don't think that, you know, bowing down in the middle of a square to ideologues uh, is going to give you anything like the form of, of, of redemptive mm. atonement you're seeking. However, I think we need mm. to say that a very deep thing is at work there. And we're, it's not those people's fault, at some level, that they haven't been offered more meaningful alternatives.
0: Mm-hmm. What is your guide through this? Do you have a teacher, physical, historical, metaphysical, that, or, or source of renewal, as you get engaged in all of this activity that you're doing uh, how do you find zero again or what is the
1: your teacher because you ask such good questions I would say few things one of the absolutely cardinal perennial influences in my life is is uh, having grown up as the eldest of 10 children, having spent you know a lot of time with my siblings and younger, all of them younger than me, as I say, the reason I bring that up is because I, I come back again and again to a bedrock understanding or insight into what the human being is. And it's, it's innate dignity its terrible and beautiful powers its faculties and capacities which i think are always present in in every human being no matter how degraded no matter how lost no matter how bad a person they may have become those are those are still somehow there and so this is a recollective bedrock for me because I, I just don't think we're doing anything at all as human beings that really counts unless it is about that. You know, that question of how we help human beings more fully realize themselves. Um, and that's a, that's a deep Deep question, and then I would say that I had the amazing privilege of experiences, and particularly educational experiences with teachers who whose learning and pedagogical uh, wisdom really opened worlds up for me. And those were above all the worlds of ancient and medieval uh, literature and philosophy. Mm. Spent a long time with uh, Boethius and. You know my boy can't spend time with the, what's that
0: my boy theus
1: yeah just
0: <laughs> right. a shout out to boy I have him around here somewhere consolation of philosophy a wonderful wonderful short little read that everybody should have spend a week with
1: I uh, heartily commend that suggestion so you know teachers and then you know I had the I had the uh the I mean I you know, I had the great privilege of spending people, time with people like my French grandmother and time in places like the south of France, where you can pretty deeply get into a deep past. And uh, I was—I worked for a decade over the summers during my PhD as, a, as an educational uh, travel guide, so I spent a lot of time, hmm. you know, seeing my way around the various countries in Europe, picking up good parts of the languages, and so there have been you know as, as with any human being there's a lot of you know there you know took a long time a lot of different forces and influences and things and you know stephen blackwood coming to be you know who, who he is but those are those are three of the the key ins- insights that i would key influences i would i would delineate and then i would i would also say benjamin there's a i mean we really have to think hard about you know what What a human being is and how a human being is realized. And, you know, on the one hand, we know that has something to do with agency. You know, no one else can live your life. You you have to live your life. And it's not meaningful unless you find it meaningful in a certain sense. Um, There's a self-conscious character to it. That doesn't mean that meaning is simply created. I would say it's not. It's discovered. And it's discovered in things outside yourself. But you know, agency is really fundamental. And so if, if our views of what we can do about poverty or ideology or whatever don't involve taking people's agency seriously, they're not going to work and they're not going to produce a good outcome. But the second side of it hmm. is that it's not merely I – mean, you can't just throw a human being into the woods – as an infant, and think, oh, great, go realize yourself—you're totally free. I mean, it, it, you know, so this atomistic idea that somehow, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, that's not that's not entirely right either. There are there are conditions of human flourishing, you know, in the family initially, and and then beyond that, that allow a human being to—it's the soil in which you're planted. And so, I think we have to think very very carefully about both of these sides, both. What it means to realize one's agency, and what are the conditions in which that realization is possible?
0: Hmm. Is there uh, like a cross-fit exercise regimen for freeing the will or I- increasing one's agency, a, a leg day of volition? Uh, is there like a practice? Is agency just something that you're gifted or you have to work
1: on it? and how do you work on it? It's a beautifully leading question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? You sneaky fellow. Uh, um, well, I think Aristotle's got this one right, really. You know, we become strong by lifting heavy things. And so there is, you, you've got to, as the old phrase goes, you have to start where you are. And even a tiny little step in a direction is is a it's going to open up new possibilities. So yeah, fundamentally, the human being is made up of the capacity of certain core faculties, uh, Augustine puts it as uh, me- uh, memory, knowledge and will. Hmm. And we could dig into that in various ways. But you know, fundamentally, the human hmm. being, uh, any rich conception of the human being is that we, we, we have forms of knowing, of understanding the world, and then we have to act in it, we have to live, which actually, you know, will. And, you know, the deepening realization of ourselves has to do with these two things is actually coming to know and understand things more fully because we can be wrong and mistaken. And our vision is obscured. And, you know, maybe, you know, know, we're blinded by appetite or prejudice or or or, uh, you know, we just didn't have enough chance to live enough to understand that our earlier views were just, you know, they weren't full enough. And so there's a deepening of knowledge on the one hand and then a a a f- fuller realization through living that out more adequately and that takes you know that takes the courage of your convictions and so yes i think that in a really fundamental sense there's an ongoing deepening movement at least, ideally, for every one of us. I mean, that's what human life is: is coming to know and will more adequately, more fully, hmm. more—dare I say it—truly, beautifully. Mm-hmm. And then, like, it's league. not. It's it. It needs to be. It really needs to be said. This isn't sort of like just some recurrent loop or something. Like you always like you're cutting the same damn grass, you know, outside in front of the in front yard every week. Like it's just you're not actually getting anywhere. I mean you know we we actually i think all do know that you can come to understand yourself more deeply you hope that by the 25 you've learned something from 18 and and from your mistakes and by 45 more than by 35 and that those deepening forms of understanding of self-knowledge also open up deeper forms of of living that you can be truer to what you understand now we also know that the cycle can go in the in the, in, the, in the wrong direction in which you you will against the things you know are true, and you become a lesser, smaller, more pitiful person. Yeah. And you know, that ultimately that is the dynamic that, that Dante beautifully depicts for us in the descent into his, his allegorical hell, and then his his, uh, his, ascent, his remaking of the personality at, in the canto of, of purgatory and in, in paradise. These are not uh, literal accounts of what a, a Dante thought the afterlife was. These are allegorical accounts of human beings right now. That's why the book is so damn important. Hmm. It's like a window into who you are and how you might live.
0: Hmm. Is there going to be a Stephen Blackwood book? Like a distillation of... Are you going to do a consolation of Philosophy? Have you already done it? Or do you need to be imprisoned on an island somewhere and uh, thrown out of polite society before that's going to be jump-started?
1: That would probably be a good start. I, I would... <laughs> I would like to try and give these thoughts a form that might be useful to others. They're not really my thoughts in the end. Um, And I would welcome thoughts and advice about what form that might take.
0: Well, you're a master of patterns, so you could always try iambic pentameter on for uh, size. See how far you get. That's
1: right. That's right. That's right. If my Greek were better, I could do something in... uh, Hexameter, you know, that would really yeah. be, that would really be great. Um, yeah. That'd be harkening back. That well, you, be could brutalist do, you could do hexameter in English. Um,
0: what's what's next up? What what can we plug? You have Ralston College. Is that are you guys servicing now, or is it still? I don't know at what stage or what state this wonderful project
1: is. And well, I mentioned the two sides of things: both the degree granting side of things and the 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 larger community things for anyone anywhere we always thought we'd start with the degrees and then do the you know somehow try and find ways of expanding our reach but uh in the in the uh wonderful mysterious way of things we're actually starting in the other order we've uh got this kind of global growing global audience uh, uh for the non-degree side of things and on that uh, uh in that category i would I think it's important to, to at least uh, note that we've signed a partnership with FutureLearn, which is a, a global online learning platform which grew out of the Open University in the United Kingdom. It's a platform many you know, universities use to grant their degree or to offer online degrees. But we were excited about it because they have uh, a, a really superb uh, sort of genre of course called the short course which can be taken by anyone anywhere you don't have to be enrolled as a student um, and so we're well, our first short courses are in production now and will be the the first of them will be going up in the next few weeks by uh, the the great uh, Theodore Dalrymple aka Dr. Anthony Daniels on Samuel Johnson's Rasselas and uh, Andrew Doyle the 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 satirist journalist comedian is going to be doing a course on Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, Uh, Jay Perini on Robert Frost, and so on and so forth. We've got a bunch of things in the hopper on that side. Uh, We're also looking at in-person events like our Savannah Symposium that was postponed because of COVID of a year ago. And, uh, And then on the degree side, we have been now authorized by the state for operation and and granted our degree-granting powers. And we uh, hope and expect to uh, to announce the formal launch of our first master's degree program in the humanities uh, uh, in this calendar year. And that's then wonderful. to move to undergraduate programs and other degree programs uh, over time. So that's mm-hmm. kind of a snapshot of our, our current development. I'd encourage people to to check out our website and to to, to sign up and join us. You know, we, we, that's what this is about.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you already have the architectural plans for the, the actual physical building that you mull around at night? Like what, what style are are you going to be aiming for when you, when you get to build your institution?
1: Well, uh, and what will mean, it really mean as a metaphor? That's such a beautiful thing to consider. In our first instance, we intend to purchase Beautiful historic buildings here in historic Savannah. That's what the Savannah College of Art and Design did very successfully. Savannah uh, Savannah's one of the most beautiful cities in the country. It's just glorious hmm. downtown historic core. One of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And certainly the the, the the reason we chose Savannah was because of this, this wondrous landscape, architecturally botanically etc so we'll we will buy and repurpose buildings there in fact we have our uh, we have some uh, some let's say plans with respect to that and and yet we also are aware that it may be that we need to build things too and i would only say on that topic that i think it would be important to us to be in some degree of conversation with or even communion with the forms of collegiate architecture from the past although that's a quite a rich tradition there are many different periods and time periods and styles but we would we would want to be joyfully part of those let's say
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you have any courses that
1: you 've designed coming up or in the wings there i haven 't been able to, yet to turn to that, but I am hoping to okay. do something before too long, maybe on boethius oh, okay, perhaps well, there are all kinds of things I would love to be able to do or to do it as a team with with other people, but um, right now, my time has been pretty completely consumed with the the launch and development of uh, this institution and all of its uh, current and future ambitions. Uh, but as our team takes shape, I'm hoping I'll have more time for the, Scholastic let's say, the pedagogical of things, a- yeah. aspect of yeah. this, which is what got me into it in the first place, obviously. Yeah,
0: yeah. That sounds like you. I can just feel like this energy, uh, involved in what you guys are doing it's a very exciting thing that you guys are uh doing and i do hope or maybe it's a prayer that you guys are the the david to the goliath of the uh, monstrosity of uh, higher education institution with all of that administrative bloat if you guys can just aim just the right little rock that just the right pineal gland and take one of those guys down. That'd be wonderful. I don't. I don't want to be uh, negative in that sense, but it would be great to pave the way for a better
1: society of uh, education. Well, I'll say two things. The first is I will share with you this. Um, my wife's an art historian, and this is a. Oh. This is the one of the backdrops she has. This is it's a life size, a life size uh, section of it's the head of eye. David. In Michelangelo's sculpture, you too can find one of these online. In any event, um, it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a little reminder of the iconic story that you you've just uh, brought Hmm. into view. Um, I think one of the things that people don't adequately appreciate is that well, is the asymmetrical character of of this. I mean. I think it's a mistake. People talk about the long march through the institutions, right? And then they think, well, well, we have to reverse the march. And you know, I think that's actually a, mis- a mistake to think that way because mm-hmm. it's not—it's not symmetrical. It's not like you can sort of, you know, walk into you know Yale and, and fundamentally change the culture. I mean, you could have ten billion dollars and not have any meaningful effect on any of the Ivy League institutions. It's—they're they're not for sale. They're not you know, not the governance, not the faculty, not the administrators. And so that often then leads people to inaction. They say, well, nothing we can do, you know, too bad. But that's where it comes back to this question of the starving person on your own, your own porch, knocking on your door, asking you for something to eat. I think what is not sufficiently appreciated by people who think we can do nothing is that we already have all the ingredients of what we need now. I mean, young people are hungry, for alternatives. And we don't need anyone's permission. I mean, that's what the status quo always wants you to think, right? Is that you need to have the permission of the current players in order to do something where they can actually squash you and prevent any of the change you seek to bring about. But why would you play that game? I mean, that's just to be, you know, brainwashed by the, uh, the current power holders. And what we really need to do is, have the courage of offering young people an alternative. And there's absolutely no reason in the world we can't do that. I mean, it's true. I mean, we, you know, Ralston College needs support. You can't, you can't, it's very hard to run an institution of higher education without philanthropic support. I mean, it's just, it's, it's always been that way throughout all of history. And I would, uh, you know, we, 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 we stand deeply in need of that. But it's not for me. It's not for us. It's because the the crowds are thronging. Hmm. Seeking alternatives. And I think there are actually quite binary decisions that need to be made here in which you say, well, are we are we're going to we're going to feed these hungry people? Are we going to tell them to, to screw off, you know, condemn them to forms of education and uh, institutional life that we all know are destructive? Hmm. So I think, you know, the 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 moment is is actually quite beautifully. The possibilities are great. They're also terrifying if we don't do it you know things will get it's not clear that <laughs> our situation is going to get better it may get much worse and the only hope i would say we have is hmm. is to try and do right by as best we can the young people on whom the future really will depend
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but um that's a great and terrible undertaking to be involved in.
1: Well it's join also us.
0: full of uh, hope. Sure, I'll join you. Uh what? <laughs> well I just need to bring like twenty undergraduates along. Is that uh is that cost of entry? Is this kind of like a pyramid uh style education? Uh academos?
1: We're more uh, we're more direct to consumer, I would say. <laughs> but well, you know, so, it, it's interesting yeah. you bring up the skeptics, right? Because hmm. though we think it is true that we need to kind of radically disrupt the whole system of higher education, and that involves certain forms of of uh, you know degrees and credentials of certain kinds, um, you know, we do need to keep very clearly in view. You know well what are the characteristics of the great institutions of higher education in all of history, of, of even education in all of history, and you know, it's, I would say there aren't very many that are doing very well right now, hmm. but there are lots of models from the past, and I think it's interesting you bring up this, the you know the skeptics and you know the skeptics and the Stoics and the Epicureans, you know, there was a lot going on in these. A wonderful book by a, uh, the late philosopher Pierre Hadot, called "Philosophy as a Way of Life," and uh, that's how it's anyway that's how it's translated into English. It's a, written in, in French under a different title, but the the point is is that the cardinal institutions that we think about, you know, the the, the Lyceum and the the Academy in ancient Greece, and and then these these uh, these philosophical schools throughout the whole hellenistic period then of course you get into the monastery and then the the university you know which the university is almost a thousand years old now and mm-hmm. you have you have forms of uh you know the micro communities the colleges that take place within those and then you know you have all kinds of other forms of uh you know schools at the at the, at the younger level at the primary and secondary level but the the point i'm trying to make is a simple one actually which is that if you're not connected with that real with the paradigmatic activities, the lifeblood of, you know, people living together asking fundamental questions, you know, reading works that help them ask those questions and more truly understand the depths of their own selves and how to live in the world. Well then you're you're really you've really departed very fundamentally from it's like if you it's like if you have a have a restaurant and like it's no longer selling food. Like it. what you're doing is no longer, you know, if you call yourself a cook, but you don't actually make food for human beings to eat, you, you, you mm-hmm. kind of have to take a pretty serious look in the mirror. And I'd say that actually is the situation with the colleges and universities right now is that they have they have, if not openly betrayed, as many of them have, they have at least profoundly forgotten their fundamental mission such that. Well, the proof of this benjamin i think is that when most people think about you know when they seek a place where they can ask or find answers to fundamental human questions you know the kind that i was saying that we all ask i would say that it is now the case that the average person the person, place they don't look is to the university hmm. or to our colleges They go to maybe podcasts or, you know, self-help books or, or, you know, I don't know, maybe vegan meal training or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of places people may look. But what I'm trying to point out is that that is a sign that these institutions of education have, whether intentionally or unintentionally, betrayed their fundamental value proposition.
0: Hmm. And so rebooting that... Just a speculative question. Do you think that that will scale? Or do you guys have, uh, at Ralston, are there like precepts? Did you boil it down to, into like the core root that could be you know, franchised out? Do you, do you expect that uh, you guys have struck upon the, those core foundations that can replicate, uh, revitalize, and, and bring a renaissance of education at the uh, adult level back into
1: society? Yes, and no. Yes, in the sense that we fully expect the things that we're doing online and indeed perhaps in person things uh, that are not degree focused, open to anyone anywhere, that those are going to continue to find a very wide audience. I mean, our, our, it's interesting to note our last lecture with Tony Daniels online had people joining us from 25 different countries and five continents. I mean, you know, so I think on the one hand, yes, I mean, that we expect there will be. You know, as there have been already, many millions of people who will, we hope, be meaning, find their lives meaningfully um, enriched by the conversation they can become a part of at Ralston College. Um, but that's, that's not to say that we need to, be, in some sense, be the epicenter. I mean, we hope that people go off and do all kinds of free and beautiful things have nothing to do with us. Um, I would also say that education in the longer form that we're talking about, it both is and is not scalable. I mean, hmm. you, you mean, the idea that you can sort of just do everything over the internet is is it, for a million people is just is just wrong. Um, we're very keen on the internet, and we're going to do everything we think we can on the internet, as I've just said. But uh, we think that when you tar- start talking about an in-person educational experience over multiple m- multiple years, that there's a limit to how big the institution can be and beyond which it compromises the experience uh, that it is trying to uh, provide. And so at that point, I think one needs to... Uh, Scale in different ways. I think the collegiate university is an excellent model of, of Oxford and Cambridge, where you have a number of small colleges under the umbrella of a larger university. We certainly are open to different locations around the country and around the world. Uh, but ultimately, we're not we're not looking for you know world domination. I mean, I think that we will become uh, an increasingly impossible to ignore force within within higher education, hmm. but. For goodness sakes, the last thing we need is some centrally planned, centrally managed thing. I mean we're we're, well, we're and that's, why, that's we're against why I use that the, whole model. The I
0: that's why I use the metaphor of the algorithm or the like the precepts. If you can boil it down to, you know, the the five foci that Evergreen had, uh that I, don't, I I'd have to review them and see to what extent they fulfilled those. But I was just wondering if that core like you were saying the core purpose of the college how do you how have you engraved that and have you guys distilled that down into something that other people can take up
1: well, yes in in at least a couple of fundamental ways the, the first is that we you know, we do have we do think that this is not just procedural like about freedom of speech or something you actually need content and you know we have you know, quite developed ideas and plans in terms of curriculum they're not wildly unconventional but it would be uh, very wrong for me not to to directly point out that you, there is no such thing as an educational institution that doesn't have you know content like curricula. So we've given a lot of thought to those questions, and yeah, we can we, those ideas could be could be replicated, and we should in some sense see our ideas to be replications of, of earlier paradigms. Um, but the second thing I would say is that that we do have some pretty fundamental commitments and. Those, I think, can also be widely shared, uh, and those are, I would just quickly say, to, first, to seek the truth with courage, second, to apprehend beauty in all of its forms, third, to the freedom of thought and speech on which those depend, and finally, to the community or the, the friendship or, or even you know fellowship that is the context for those pursuits. Those are our fundamental commitments, and we would rejoice to have them shared by every institution everywhere, whether they're associated with us formally or not.
0: Hmm. If you write them up in Latin, you might get an undergrad to get them tattooed somewhere convenient on their body, in the very
1: least. Well, you know, this uh, this would be an unconventional route to, uh, you know, monetization, revenue streams. Um <laughs> It's not off the table
0: no exactly <laughs> <I'm kidding>. don't <laughs> brush things off the table
1: I'm kidding <laughs> actually I think I think actually tattoo culture is very interesting though I'm not a uh, I'm not interested in it myself and I no don't think it it can lean into things that are uh, that uh, about which there is probably much regret later in life hmm. um, there is something in wanting to declare your identity like this is what I am that is very clearly uh, what well, can be read in terms of the very questions we're talking about, the, mm-hmm. the, the meaning crisis writ large. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And whether you're inscribing that on yourself or you're being inscribed by society and to what degree you're really aware of what's inscribing who and what it's plugging you into. Rich questions. Yeah. yeah. Stephen Blackwood. You don't have a podcast. You have a college, so you're on you're on a whole other level of what people can check out. Uh, I will link your your the Ralston College website and your Twitter and any other links that you want uh, below, so that people can check out your work and what's on the table and what what you're bringing up.
1: Uh, that would be great. We we do the the college has a podcast in fact oh. and uh, I, I happen to be the, the the host of it but it's not the stephen blackwood podcast uh, it's the ralston oh, okay. college podcast i totally and misspoke
0: so, i really i'm apologize. No, no, I apologize it's fine no it's
1: Sorry. completely fine i am only saying it because i'd love to share it with people
0: and that uh is that pretty regularly uh scheduled uh, at
1: this yeah every yeah. every two to four weeks we have Excellent. something not uh, We're not making content anything like it, the pace you are. I don't know how you do it, to be honest, uh, Benjamin. Well, it's It uh. it must be – I have some sense of how much it takes to produce things. So uh, mm. you have my, my hats off to you. Well, I just feel for my audience because
0: they're like, more content. I'm like, more content. <laughs> so I live by the g- content because I'm going to die by the content someday. So that's my uh... – my main jam right now.
1: I hope you keep it up.
0: Well, thank you. And thanks for joining me. And thanks for the opportunity to speak. It was really uh, very enlightening. And I mean that in the deep sense of that word.
1: Well, I would have loved to have heard more from you in this conversation, but your questions were so damn good, you just kept, kept them coming. Thank you for the chance to speak on your, uh, 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 on your podcast. I hope that we'll talk again soon, on or off the record.
0: Absolutely. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.